0: Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for our time together. We thank you that we can gather together to learn more about your word. We pray, Lord, as we look at these bold judgments, that we would be uh, convicted that, of, of sin, righteousness, and judgment, that these things will indeed happen, and that it behooves us to be those who trust in Christ. We pray, Lord, for those that don't know you, that they would be convicted by this message, that they would turn to you, And we pray, Heavenly Father, that we'd be reminded of what grace and mercy you have bestowed upon us in your Son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, as you can see, I titled this message, The Road to Armageddon. We're going to be looking at the last bold judgments. Remember, there's three series of judgments. You have seven seal judgments, seven trumpet judgments, and then you have seven bold judgments. And so that's what we're going to be concluding with before we get to the destruction of Babylon in chapters 17 through 18. So today, as we look at these different bold judgments, you're going to see that once they are poured out, it's going to culminate in the battle of Armageddon. This is the final battle that God has promised would occur, where all the nations will gather against Jerusalem, and he will fight against them and destroy them and set up his kingdom. And so that's what this is all about. It's about Messiah coming to personally intervene and what's called the great and terrible day of Yahweh, what's called the narrow day of the Lord, the 24-hour period where Messiah fights on behalf of his people. So that's where all the judgments will culminate. Now let's begin by looking at the fact that God will pour out his wrath. We see this in Revelation 16.1. John says, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. Now, does everyone see here that the loud voice that's crying out, we have to discern, well, whose voice is it? Well, the loud voice more than likely is God's. We saw that back in Revelation 15:8, where no one else could enter the temple because of the judgments that were going on. Remember the smoke and the glory of God filled the temple according to Revelation 15:8, so no one else could enter it. So this certainly is the very voice of God. In fact, when we get to Revelation 16, 17, we're not going to cover that this time. But when we get there, that's the seventh bowl. We're just going to be covering the first six now. He's going to say this. He's going to say, when the seventh bowl was poured out, it says, a loud voice came from the temple saying, it is done. So this is certainly the voice of God declaring that his wrath is going to go forth. And it should bring to our minds a passage in Isaiah 66, In Isaiah 66, you have a very similar idea going on. Notice it begins saying, a voice of uproar from the city, a voice from the temple, the voice of Yahweh. Now, let me just set the stage here for Isaiah 66, and let me try to correlate it to our studies here in Revelation 16. In Isaiah 66, verse 6 through 8, the context is you have two groups of people, and Yahweh is congratulating, in a sense those who are tremblers of his word. They are those who are going to inherit his kingdom. Why? Because they have faith. But that's juxtaposed against those who do not tremble at his word. They're going to experience his wrath. And whether you have his salvation or his wrath, that's determined by whether you have faith or unbelief. But all of it is depicted as occurring, I think, during Daniel's 70th week. Because listen to what happens. Isaiah 66, 6 through 8, it says, A voice of uproar from the city, a voice from the temple, the voice of Yahweh, who was rendering recompense to his enemies. So stop there. Here's a voice of Yahweh from his temple. Now he's going to declare to all those who don't tremble at his word, that's it. There's going to be judgment upon you. Continuing on, verse 7, he says, Before she travailed, talking of Israel. Travailing, by the way, is a fancy term that means to give birth she brought forth, before her pain came, she gave birth to a boy. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Can a land be born in one day? Now stop there. Why is he asking those questions? Well, because those who don't tremble at his word are dubious of the fact that God will restore Israel. They're dubious of the fact that God can bring about what he has stated in his promises through his prophets. So he's goading them, and he's basically saying, can I not do that? Can I not, in fact, bring about what I've declared? So that's what he's doing here. Now, he keeps going. He says, can a nation be brought forth all at once? As soon as Zion, now notice he changes it. Now he says, as soon as Zion travailed, as soon as she went into labor pains, she also brought forth all at once. As soon as Zion travailed, she also brought forth her sons. Now, the travails of Zion, we should understand, is the 70th week of Daniel, the last seven years. Talked about in Daniel chapter 9. I've told you before that that's synonymous with the parousia, the technical term for the coming of Christ. That's the travails of the Messiah. And even the Jews believed, if you look at their writings in the Babylonian Talmud, that there would be a seven-year travail period prior to the advent of Messiah. Well, that's exactly what we're reading about in the book of Revelation. And so the mockers are saying that God cannot use such a short time period to bring forth a great nation, but in fact, he's going to. In fact, if you look at the great tribulation period, how long is that? It's only three and a half years, isn't it? That's known as the time of Jacob's distress, according to Jeremiah 30. Well, it's only three and a half years. And yet in such a short time period, God is going to bring forth his nation. So, notice in red, I have her pain. I don't know if you can even see red on there. <laughs> no, you can't see it. Well, on my screen, let me point it out. On my screen, it's clearly red. But let me point to it right here. Do you see that? It says her pain. I've got it right here. In the Greek Septuagint, that comes from the term odine. Now, odin is a technical expression that refers to the labor pains that occur prior to the nation of Israel being born. Jesus uses it in his all of a Discourse. Remember, he says these are the beginning of birth pains, Odeen. It's used in Isaiah 13, 8, regarding the future day of the Lord, which this is referring to. It refers to it as a time of birth pains. The apostle Paul uses it in 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 2 through 3. Remember, he says that the day of the Lord comes like a thief in the night. While they're saying peace and safety, destruction will come upon them suddenly, like Odin, like labor pains upon a woman, and they shall not escape. So certainly that is what Isaiah is referring to. He's talking about the seven-year labor pains that occur prior to the advent of Messiah. So that's what's being announced here, and I think that that's the connection. John is showing us that these are the last of the labor pains. And when this wrath is poured out, the Messianic kingdom is going to be born. You know, I've told you guys many times that when my wife was pregnant, the actual birth of my son was fairly unexpected. We were watching Bill Cosby, a funny video. This was before Bill Cosby had his issues. But we were watching one of his videos and hooping it up, and all of a sudden her water broke. And there was no warning. I told her to put the water back in. I didn't know. I thought maybe you could just fill it back up. It doesn't work that way. We were going to have a baby boy that day. And that's the way it is with the Day of the Lord. Right now, you and I, in the church age that we're living in, we're living during the pregnancy, but we're not living during the time period of labor pains. The labor pains come upon the world suddenly. That's what Paul says. The day of the Lord comes like a thief in the night. How many know that a thief doesn't give you a precursor? He doesn't say, hey, I'm going to rob your place at 12.05 a.m., and you're going to see a blue car out in your driveway. That's not the point, is it? The point of a thief is they come when you don't know it. The same thing occurs with the day of the Lord. You and I as believers don't know when the day of the Lord is coming any more than the unbelieving world. What differentiates you and I from the unbelieving world is not that you and I know when it's coming, but we believe that it's coming. Do you get the distinction? So don't fall for people to say, I know precisely when Jesus is coming. Jesus said Very clearly, Matthew 24, 24, 36, no one knows the day or the hour, meaning we have no heavenly idea when he's coming. Okay, so it'll come forth like labor pains, very unexpected. But when it comes, God will be faithful to bring about his kingdom. Now, notice here he says, do you see the underline? Is that on there? Oh, yeah, good, that's on there. Notice in verse 1, he's going to pour out his wrath. And I want you to think of the irony. That same term, ekao in Greek, is used for pouring out the Spirit in Acts 2.17. In fact, turn your Bibles to Acts 2.17. Acts 2.17. I want to show you a contrast. It's either or. God pours one thing or another upon a person. Acts 2.17. It says, and in the last days, so remember here is Peter quoting from Joel 2, And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. So notice here you have the pouring out of the Spirit. He declares that it would happen in the last days. Again, when did the last days occur? When did they begin? With the first advent of Messiah. So we've been living in the last days. So here he pours out the Spirit, and notice he says it's on all flesh, That doesn't mean every single person, man, woman, and child, without exception. It means Jew and Gentile and all people without distinction. In other words, the Spirit isn't something that just resides in Israel. But now it's sent forth to the entire world. Messianic salvation will go forth. The Spirit leads to the confession of Christ. So at the end of the day, you're going to either have the Spirit poured upon you and you'll be regenerated and come to Christ, or you're going to end up having the wrath of God poured upon you. And by the way, this idea of echao, pour out, that's why God often alludes to the Holy Spirit as being like water. He says, unless you're born of water and spirit. Why? Because it's the imagery of him pouring it out. Uh, Remember, there's rivers that flow from Jerusalem. It's an image of the Spirit, isn't it? He's poured out like water. A baptism is a symbol of that. When you and I are baptized, it's a work of the Spirit. Why? Because he brought us to faith. It doesn't do the work It's a picture of the work done, okay? So that's the idea of pouring out. So at the end of the day, every person is either going to have the Spirit of God poured upon them or the wrath of God. It's really either or. All right, now let's keep going to the first bowl here. Verse 2, it says, So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and it became a loathsome and malignant sore on the people who had the mark of the beast and who worshipped his image. Now, notice this malignant sore How horrendous this must be because you have no indication in the text anywhere that this loathsome and malignant sore ever goes away. So once these ulcers and sores break forth, there's no indication in the text of the book of Revelation that they ever go away. The people have to live with it. And it's horrendous. Now, what's interesting is here when you have the first bowl all the way to the fourth bowl you have individuals affected very directly. In fact, listen to what Thomas says, the great scholar in the book of Revelation. He says the first four bulls affect individuals directly, either through personal affliction or through objects of nature, and the last three are more of an international scale, leading the way to a final confrontation. So think about that. The first four bull judgments are very individualized. The last three are international in scope. Okay. But what's interesting is, as Thomas writes that, We have to make a caveat. The final judgment is where? It's the lake of fire. And it's eternal, and it is for the individual, isn't it? So we have to make sure we don't think that people are judged just corporately. We have to realize that it will be an individual judgment. Now, this, of course, should bring to our minds also the malignant sores that came out in Exodus 9. The same sores, in fact, the same term is used in the Greek. Exodus 9, it says it will... Become fine dust over all the land of Egypt, and will become boils, breaking out with sores, same term, on man and beast through all the land of Egypt. Now, why is that important again to see the connection between God giving sores to those who are part of Pharaoh's kingdom and him giving sores to those who are part of the Antichrist kingdom? Well, I think it's important because we want to see this as the final exodus. The first Exodus, what did God do? He saved his people from their enemies. He delivers them to the promised land. The final exodus, he's going to deliver his people from their enemies, and he's going to bring them into the ultimate promised land. Think about Joshua. Joshua, the Old Testament, same name as Jesus. He brings his people into a promised land. Jesus, the ultimate savior, new covenant, Messiah, God himself, brings his people into the Ultimate promised land, doesn't he? There's a great, I think, comparison and contrast there. OK, so the first bowl, you have these malignant sores, just like what happened at the first exodus. Now let's look at the second and third bowls. I put them together because blood is involved. Revelation 16:3 through7. John continues. He says, "The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became blood-like that of a dead man, and every living thing in the sea died." Then the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of waters, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the water saying, Righteous are you who are and who were, O Holy One, because you judge these things. So they poured out the blood of saints and prophets, and you gave them blood to drink. They deserve it. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, O Lord God, the Almighty and true Righteous are your judgments. Now notice here when he says that every single thing in the sea died. Literally in the Greek, it's every pesuke, every soul. But it has to do with the life of all living creatures in the sea. And what I want you to understand here as we look at the second and third bowl judgment is we have the idea of reversal. Now why do I say that? Well, according to Genesis 121, God gave life to all of the creatures in the sea. Well, what he gave in Genesis 121, now he's taking back. And it shows that he has complete sovereignty over his creation. He is the ultimate who takes care of the created order. And so he's going to take away what he is in fact given. Now, notice also we have here in verse 6, it says they poured out blood, the blood of saints and prophets. And you have given them blood to drink. They deserve it. You also have the idea of reversal there. All the enemies of God who shed the blood of the saints over all of these years are finally going to be judged. And this is answering the great cry of those who were under the altar back in Revelation chapter 6, 9. Remember that? You had all these believers under the altar crying out, How long, O Lord, until you avenge our blood? Well, here comes the answer. In the bold judgments, in fact, it will be remedied. Now, I want you to see the idea of reversal. Turn your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 5 through 8. Again, 2 Thessalonians 1,
1: 5 through 8. Yeah, Bob. You know, as you uh, show us this passage, yeah, it's interesting what they are praising God for. Yeah, A lot of people nowadays would say is a very bad thing. Right. Because they don't want to hear about a God... Who judges. Right. And they want uh, this Hegelian synthesis. Right. All the categories get erased. Yeah. Everything becomes one. And if they're going to have worship, they want to have it all, only about what they deem positive. Right. Or nice. Yeah. Or pleasant. So, how could it be that redeemed saints, that's who's doing this, right? Yeah, and here I believe it's the angel. Oh, it's angel. Out. But but still, but it's a good angel. Right. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And, and then then sorry, in... I was up, up No, my that's computer. all right. Yeah. So I'm trying to catch up here. Yeah. But here, God is being praised. Yeah. For what people, some people think we need to remove right. and don't even teach about. Right. And they don't want to think as part of His attributes. Well said. Yeah. It reminds me, Bob, as you said that
0: the um, imprecatory prayers in the Psalms that would, like, for instance, David would give of God avenging himself against the enemies. And I think there is a godly desire of wanting to see God's name upheld and him you know, redeemed
1: against his enemies, so to speak. But yeah, but see, if you would have listen to Jesse Duplantis, <laughs> he went to heaven oh. and talked to David. Okay. And David said, don't worry about those songs. He wrote them on a bad day. <laughs> gotcha. Okay, disregard them. Yeah. Anybody else have any comments or questions?
0: Yeah. Okay, so did everybody turn your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians 1, 5 through 8? I want you to see the idea of reversal. During this time period, during the church age that you and I are living in, much affliction and much blood will be shed of the saints. But in the 70th week of Daniel, that will be reversed. We're going to see a reversal take place. 2 Thessalonians 1, 5 through 8. Paul says, This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment, so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God. He's talking about their suffering. For which indeed you are suffering. Verse 6, he says, For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Now, just stop there for a moment. Notice the term affliction, if I recall. I think that term is thalipsis in the Greek. It's the term that we often render tribulation. So let me just explain why this is significant to me. A lot of people will say, Eric, why do you teach that believers are going to be exempt from tribulation? Doesn't Paul say that through many tribulations we must inherit the kingdom of God? He does in Acts 14.22. Well, what we have to do is distinguish between tribulations and things that occur to us during the church age and the tribulations that will occur because of God's wrath at his parousia in the 70th week of Daniel. Okay, so what's going to happen in the 70th week of Daniel is throughout the church age, the 69 weeks, remember there's 70 weeks of years, Daniel 9. The first 69 weeks of years culminate in the Messiah's coming. Well, then there's a parenthesis. We don't know how long it will last until the last seven years come. But during that time period, the people of God suffer. And one day, that tribulation will be filled up. And once it's filled up, the Messiah comes and he does a reversal. Those who are afflicting us in tribulation will be put in tribulation. That's the reversal that you're seeing in, in spades here. Again, you don't see it in red. I highlight it in red in Revelation sixteen six. They poured out the blood because they poured out the blood of the saints. There's a reversal. Now, notice the reaction then in verse 7. Here's from believers. He says, And I heard the altar saying, Yes, O Lord God, the Almighty and true and righteous are your judgments. Now, why Is that referred to as the altar? Well, it's being personified because the saints are so associated with those who are under the altar back in Revelation 6, 9. So we know that that's those saints who have been martyred because of persecution and they are the ones who are admitting, yes, Lord, the Almighty and true, righteous are your judgments. Meaning, it's saints at the end in verse 6. The verse 6 one is uh, the angel. So, yep. So we go from the angel to, to the saints in verse 7. Now, one thing I want to point out there is notice when the saints say, righteous and true are your judgments, we have to realize that God's judgments are not capricious. He does not just merely fly off the handle. Okay, so if you see the wrath of a man, you'll often see someone who flies off the handle and becomes angry for no good cause. But what the saints are declaring in its biblical truth is that that's not so with God. When God judges, it is rightly deserved. He alone knows the motives of the heart perfectly. Yes, Eric.
2: I have a question, actually. Um, yep. And I don't know where I read this, and you might, you might know this offhand. I don't know. The word martyr, um, somewhere recently, and I wish I could remember where, I read that that word martyr, that used to be, in other words, if you go into the Greek that that was the word for witness.
0: I think it was marturion. And, is that, is and that so many wow. of the early witnesses were killed yeah. that that became the
2: word for martyr. Right. Is, is that true? I, I think that it sounds.
0: It. it. sounds like the Greek term I think that, Isn't that yeah. how you say it, uh, Adam? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's um, right. And, yeah, yeah, so it because sounds like it.
1: they witnessed and testified, Amen. that's what caused them to be killed. Right. So that came martyr. Right.
0: Yeah, very good catch. Thanks, Eric. Very good. Yeah, excellent reading. Free coffee. (laughs) Anybody else? Okay, so we have this idea of reversal then. The wrath of God will come upon the enemies and the people of God will end up being saved when this wrath is all completed. Now, when we get to the fourth bowl, we see the regenerate are going to be spared, of course, but again, the wrath continues on the unregenerate. Revelation 16, 8 through 9, it says, The fourth angel poured out his bowl... Upon the sun, and it was given to it to scorch men with fire. Men were scorched with fierce heat, and they blasphemed the name of God who has the power over these plagues, and they did not repent so as to give him glory. Now, dear ones, what's interesting is we look at, and again, that red didn't come up, but as we look out this bold judgment where the sun now is being used to scorch the enemies of God. This is something that earlier in Revelation, the people of God are promised exemption from. In fact, turn your Bibles, if you will, to Revelation 7.16. I want to show you what happens to those who are martyred. The great promise is they will never undergo things like this. Revelation 7.16. Now, this is designed, as we read this, to show, again, a distinction between what happens to the regenerate and the unregenerate. Revelation 7.16, about the regenerate, Believers in Christ, it says, they will hunger no longer, nor thirst more, nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. Now, the background, I won't turn to it, but you can jot down Isaiah 49.10. That's the backdrop to that. That was the prophecy where one day that would indeed occur. So I want you to think, dear ones, about how the suffering of the people of God will one day, it will cease. It's not just pie-in-the-sky thinking when you and I are... Singing the songs about going away to glory, that day will one day come, and how exciting that will be! So here you have these cosmic disturbances throughout the book of the uh, book of Revelation, and you actually have four of them. And I want to put them up. We actually have five of them, I think. The 70th week cosmic disturbances. Let me show you them in order. At the sixth seal, Revelation chapter 6, verses 12 through 14 you had a great cosmic disturbance, the sun, moon, and stars. Then at the fourth trumpet, you had another cosmic disturbance, Revelation 8.12. You have another one at the fifth trumpet, Revelation 9, 1 through 2. You have another one here at the fourth bowl. And then I believe you have another one at the very end of the 70th week. Now, we're at the end of the 70th week now, but I think it's right at the end. The reason why is because the sun, moon, and stars are acknowledged as failing once again by Jesus in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, 29. And Jesus is very clear to say it was after the tribulation of those days. Now, why am I laboring the point that you have five cosmic disturbances? These are unique to the 70th week of Daniel. You don't see these types of cosmic disturbances elsewhere, like, for instance, in history. Now, the other reason I think it's important to realize that there are many cosmic disturbances throughout the 70th week is remember the great promise in Joel chapter 2 is that Elijah would be sent prior to the great and terrible day of the Lord, the great and terrible day of Yahweh. So a lot of people take that and they say, aha, there is something that must occur prior to the day of the Lord. After all, doesn't it say that Elijah has to come? Well, let me pull up my pointer here. See if I can get it. I want you to think of all of these events occurring in the 70th week of Daniel. Okay, does everyone see all of these trumpet judgments? Well, if you consider that the very first trumpet, or seal judgment, rather, that has a cosmic disturbance associated with it, that occurs within the day of the Lord. Remember, the day of the Lord, the broad day, begins at the inception of the 70th week of Daniel. So, therefore, you're not going to have anything to tip you off prior To the coming of the 70th week. But once you're in the 70th week, look at all the disturbances that occur prior to the great and terrible day of Yahweh, which is that single day that occurs when Messiah comes and fights against the enemies of God. Okay, so that's the distinction I think we have to make. There are some precursors that occur prior to the battle of Armageddon, and that would be Elijah comes, you have the sun, moon, and stars that are affected. You have these cosmic disturbances, but they will not tip you off as to when the broad day of the Lord occurs. The broad day of the Lord occurs at the beginning of the 70th week of Daniel. We know that. Why? Because remember, he says, while they're saying peace and safety, sudden destruction comes upon them regarding the day of the Lord. At the very opening seal judgments, God says he takes peace from the earth. Okay? Paul says the day of the Lord comes while they're saying peace and safety. Can you be saying peace and safety when there's no peace? I don't think so. (laughs) So that shows you the day of the Lord begins, the broad day of the Lord, at the beginning of the 70th week. But then you have cosmic disturbances that will tip you off as to when the culminating judgment comes, the battle of Armageddon. Yes, Paul. Wait, we'll get you on mic here.
2: When you're talking about Elijah coming? Yeah. It reminded me in Matthew at the cross when he says... Uh, let's see if Elijah comes to save him uh, at the cross. Oh, right, right. Uh, would there be a connection there? There
0: is absolutely. They ble- in fact, I'm sorry. You know what? I'm thinking in my mind. I goofed the quote up. It's actually Malachi four five, where Elijah's is promised coming, but the sun, moon, and stars are promised to be darkened prior to the great and terrible day of Yahweh. Now, here, just one. I'm going to answer that question real quickly. But just one connection I want you to see that term, great and terrible day of Yahweh. It's only used twice in the Old Testament, once in Malachi four five. And the other is in Joel chapter 2. So both of them have precursors prior to the great and terrible day of Yahweh. Joel chapter 2, it's the sun, moon, and stars. Well, look and behold, we have that going on here. The other precursor is Elijah. Well, we saw at the midpoint of the tribulation period that Elijah and Moses, remember the two witnesses? They had ministries like Elijah and Moses. They come at the midpoint and they prophesy for 1260 days, for three and a half years. So the idea then is John the Baptist comes as a a Elijah in type, and he does in fact come in that spirit, but there's also an expectation that it will occur again before the great and terrible day of Yahweh. So I don't think it's either or, I think it's both and. That yes, certainly John the Baptist is like Elijah who prepares for the day of the Lord, but then you also have the two witnesses who come And they come and prophesy before the great and terrible day of Yahweh, which is the narrow day of the Lord, the battle of Armageddon. So the point is, is this was an expectation that Elijah would come. And so they're reading Malachi 4 5. And they're saying, wait, if all these things are going to occur, shouldn't there be an advent of Elijah? So they think perhaps Jesus is Elijah. They're confused. In fact, remember at the confession at Caesarea Philippi, they say, who do... Jesus asked the question, who do you say that I am? Some say you're Elijah. Some say you're John the Baptist or one of the prophets, but he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter, of course, says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So there was confusion there about his identity. Yeah, so again, what I think we should understand... Yeah, Eric, or Rich. Oh. Uh, yeah, uh, <clears throat> you know, talking about these things, you know, and timing and what ha- must happen before that must happen. Yeah. In you, you probably have addressed this many times, and forgive me if I'm beating no, a dead horse. Right. Um, but the fifth trumpet and all, in First Corinthians chapter 15, later on it says, it describes the rapture of the church, and it says that will happen at the last trumpet, the sure. last trumpet, you know, time with the last trumpet. Yeah. And again, in uh, Matthew 24, talks about the last trumpet. Yeah. Can you describe that last trumpet and, and, and the rapture maybe happening at the last trumpet or not, or how does that work? Yeah. Um, in fact, even in First Thessalonians 4, 13 through 16, Remember, Jesus himself descends through the clouds with the trumpet of God and with, the, with the, the, uh, the shout of the archangel, right? And so there's a lot of references to trumpets. And the way I would put it, Rich, is we don't understand all the orders of the trumpets. There's many of them it's seemingly associated with these last days. But a trumpet was often used to herald things. And so what I would look at it is I can't tell you a specific order just regarding the trumpet, In fact, let's turn your book, the Bibles, to Matthew 24 to that trumpet that you're referring to, because it's the only time, it's actually an allusion back to Isaiah 27. So let's just turn to it and look at it real quickly. I'll show you what I mean. Turn your Bibles to Matthew 24. And let's look at what Rich is getting at here. It's in verse 31. Yeah, there it is. So yeah, here notice here in verse 31, it says, "Then he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. So notice here, that's the only time in the Old Testament that you have the term loud. It's actually a great trumpet. Um, Adam, what's the term for great again? A gadol? Um, it's uh, shofar, gadol, shofar? It'd be the great trumpet. Okay, so what's interesting is you have a reference to, I believe it's Isaiah 27, 13 from Matthew 24, 31. So Matthew 24, 31 talks about this great trumpet and the elect is going to be gathered from the four winds. Now, many people believe that's a reference to the rapture. I don't think it is. Now, Rich, the reason I don't think that that's a reference to the rapture is because when you see the connection to Isaiah, the idea is it's going to be an in-gathering of the people of God into the kingdom of Israel. So the way I would see it then is you have a rapture of the church, which happens, I think, before the 70th week of Daniel, and it happens with a trumpet and the shout of an archangel. But then you also have a gathering of the people into the kingdom, and they're to be distinguished. Okay? Think about at the beginning of the 70th week of Daniel. You have Christ coming for the church. At the end of the 70th week, you have Christ coming with the church. And he's going to gather all of those who have been dispersed into the kingdom, and both are preceded with a trumpet. Does that make sense?
3: No, are you familiar,
0: are you
2: familiar with that 1 Corinthians 15?
0: I am, absolutely. Okay. Yep. So here's one thing. Let me point your attention then to Isaiah 27, 13. I think it's there. Did you look at it, Bob?
1: I got it right oh, okay, great. Bob will read it for us Isaiah 27, 13. On that day, a great trumpet will be blown and those lost in the land of Assyria will come as well as those dispersed in the land of Egypt and they will worship the Lord at Jerusalem on the holy mountain so it's a gathering exactly the gathering
0: of Israel right to the Jerusalem and by the way that's one of the significant reasons why the Euphrates is dried up it's not only so that the enemies of God we're gonna see that in this these passages The Euphrates River is not only dried up to allow the enemies of God to come, but also so that the remnant of Israel can come back into the kingdom. And so I think that that's a better reading and understanding of Isaiah 27, 13, because of the idea of the great trumpet. The only time in the entire Hebrew Bible that it mentions a great trumpet is there in Isaiah 27, 13. And I think certainly that's what Jesus has in mind, that there's going to be a great in-gathering into the kingdom just as promised long ago. And it'll be for all people. You and I, through faith in Christ, have been grafted in. We're not going to be excluded from that kingdom. That kingdom is our kingdom too. So whether you're a Jew or Gentile, if you're a believer in Messiah, you're going to be brought forth into that glorious kingdom. Does that make sense? Excellent. Yeah, Adam.
3: Oh, just a quick note on, on Elijah. Yeah. Uh, in Matthew uh, chapter 17, uh, verse 9, is they're coming down the mountain. Uh, and then verse 10, uh, the disciples asked him, uh, then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And remember, they just saw Elijah and Moses yes. standing on the mountain. Right. So they're, they're kind of confused a little bit in their uh, eschatology uh, seeing, sure. seeing them there. and. He answered and uh, says, uh, Elijah does come, or he is coming, and he will restore all things. But I tell tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did uh, to him whatever they pleased. Yeah. And, and you have this that And so on the one hand, uh, he is coming. He yeah. comes, and he will restore all things. But on the other hand, he has come, uh, in In John the Baptist, and there that even goes back to uh, with uh, Elijah and elisha uh, Elisha asks after the the Spirit of God comes upon uh, elijah he 's god 's anointed prophet, empowered uh, for oh, yeah. ministry, and then Elisha asks if uh, he can have a double portion of elijah 's spirit, uh, which is the spirit of God, uh, the same spirit that 's upon him, and so then God anoints him after his ministry. Uh, Elijah says, like, you don't know what what you ask. Uh, It's not mine to grant. (laughs) And so you have this idea, even going back to Moses and with Joshua, he lays his hands upon him, and the the Spirit of God comes upon him. And so to come in the spirit and power of Elijah is to come in the spirit and power of God that was upon him. Amen. Well said. And you know what? Um, Let me just hit something you said, Adam.
0: You notice Adam mentioned a mede. He's mentioning a Greek construction in the text of Matthew 17, what that is, it's on the one hand, but on the other. And so on the one hand, Elijah has come, a foreshadowing of him in the person and work of John the Baptist, but on the other, he's still to come. And so it's, again, it's not an either or, it's both and. And I like what you point out, Adam, is this, this idea of coming in the power of his ministry, that this is something that the prophets do who speak for God. They come with the idea of the anointing of Elijah. Mm-hmm, and that's what John mm-hmm. the Baptist did to make straight the way of the Lord. But he'll come again in the last period, in and the I, 70th week of Daniel. And I think
3: you may even see that in Malachi, where it first mentions Elijah at the beginning of chapter 4 and later on, and well there's some said. different things yes. that, uh, that he's going to accomplish. And even the, the men that sets up a point, counterpoint, and so builds in t- anticipation, the men, uh, that the other shoe's going to drop. There's another point coming uh, along right.
0: the way. Right. So, That's a good way of putting yeah. it, Yes. I'm sorry, um, I didn't, see, I can't, I've got a... I've bright... got two
2: hands at the same time here, Luann and Paul. So
0: since oh, I'm next to Luann, gotcha. I'll, I'll give it to her first. Sounds good.
2: And I'm going to apologize right away, Eric, because you probably have to do like pop quizzes, and it's bam, 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 you no, know, No, that's different okay. Topics. I'm
0: sorry, you're like, you look like you're on the Witness Protection Program because there's a I bright am. light behind <laughs> you, so...
2: <laughs> but Yeah. <laughs> you did the Malachi 4, um, verse 5, yeah. and... Um, then something started nagging me because you have people who will say the Bible contradicts itself. Uh-huh. Because after it says, um, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and it says, I will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of their children to their fathers. But Jesus, when he came in Matthew 10, says, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. I came to turn a man against his father, wow. a daughter against her mother. If you can just kind of explain that for people who might be hearing.
0: Yeah, no, very, very um, insightful. By the way, at the end of there of Malachi 4, I believe the idea of turning the hearts of the children back to their fathers, it may be a reference to, back to, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the forefathers, into covenant faithfulness. And so you're right, that's not fulfilled, is it, in Christ's first advent. So at the first advent of Christ, Israel, by and large, misses him. And this is why he pronounces this judgment within the temple. He says, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. A messianic uh, psalm, Psalm 118, 26. And so, but there is, at the second advent, this restoration of Israel. Well, they will, where they will mourn upon the one whom they had pierced, they'll mourn for him as an only child, a firstborn. And so that day will happen. So Malachi 4, in, um, at the very end, of chapter 4. Sorry, I'm going blind there looking at you. I'm going to have to look away <laughs> or put my sunglasses on. But um, yeah, Adam. Uh, so does that make sense, Luann?
2: So yeah, I think that will be ultimately fulfilled. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry, Paul. Right. Um, Adam refers to uh, Matthew, the 17th chapter, uh, I think specifically the 12th verse, and uh, talking about Elijah. And that actually refers to what you were talking about, the first couple of sentences, um, seconds of this uh, Bible study itself. But in yeah. uh, the 12th chapter, uh, 17th chapter, it says, but I tell you, Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, and so forth. And you were saying that there are two groups of people, those who tremble up his wrath and those who do not. And those who do not will receive a judgment. Yeah. And uh, and I was thinking to myself, and maybe you can uh, say, think this is odd, I'm not in the judgment uh, protection program. But <laughs> at any rate, you can affirm this or not, or yeah. qualify however you like. But I think for those who do not feel as though God will restore the kingdom of Israel, that group of people there, yeah. um, they will not restore it in a way they deem acceptable. And uh, I'm thinking that's what the problem here too. Elijah didn't come in a way that they deemed re- acceptable, mm. and I think we interpret the things of God the way we deem acceptable, and that's a humongous mistake. We yeah. have to be live in faith, and God. You, go, you, you do according to your word, and I will go by the word. And yeah, yeah. Uh, what is acceptable to me is non-consequential,
0: really. Yeah, well said, Paul. Yeah, we, uh, we don't sit in judgment of the word. The word should sit in judgment of us. And I think you're right in that Isaiah 66 passage. You have the tremblers of the word, and those are those who are believers. They'll succumb and submit to what the word of God says. But then you have the scoffer who sits in judgment of the word. And that's one of the fears that Bob and I have seen over the years is we'll each talk about the horror, horrors of hearing someone say, well, I don't like what it says. And you explain to them clearly what the Bible does say, and they say, well, I don't like that. Well, that's not a valid answer. You either believe or you reject, but you, we don't sit in judgment of it. And so I think there's a lot to be said for that. Yes, Adam.
3: Well, I was just going to compliment uh, what you said, so not contradicting you here. Yeah. But you're talking about the the fullness of the restoration of Israel yeah. that you see like in Isaiah and Zechariah. Right. You look on the one who, whom he appears. But you do see the first fruits of that where you, you see tax collectors, you see yes. sinners uh, who come to repentance. And even uh, Bob has spoken about uh, Zechariah. Uh, even he is a son of Abraham. Amen. Uh, and salvation has come to this house today. Yes. And so you, you have both this, uh, this concealing in uh, this revealing in Jesus uh, Uh, ministry and it's only those not who just believe the the signs which wasn't even an adequate test for a true prophet and a false prophet but who believe his words who believe the scriptures who believe the the work uh, in the words that he came to proclaim from the father amen
0: well said in fact one of my favorite uh, stories that bob always talks about is the luke seven where you have the unlikely harlot who comes to faith and she'll be a partaker in the messianic banquet All the while, Simon the Pharisee, a leader in Israel, he, as far as we can tell in the passage, he won't because he's a rejecter of Messiah. So, yeah,
1: well said. You know, and based on what we're studying here, notice it says they did not repent. I think I wrote an article called They Did Not Repent many years ago. I wonder if we're still alluding a little bit to Exodus. It's like Pharaoh. Because all of these signs happened, and what did Pharaoh do? He hardened his heart. He hardened his heart. Yeah, that's exactly Now The people who say, if we want people to become Christian or America to turn into a great Christian country, we need signs and wonders. Right. And if people see signs and wonders, then they'll believe. Right. But the fact is, the evidence says just the opposite. Amen. And you might say, well... Pharaoh's signs and wonders were negative, so why would he want that? And the same with Revelation. But if you look at John 6, Jesus multiplied the bread. Yes. Right? Jesus walked on the water. They wanted to make him king. And so he just kept preaching the truth to them. Right. And pretty soon they wanted to be rid of him. And all that's left is a handful of disciples. Yeah. And Jesus asked them, are you going to leave? So, the theory that signs and wonders make people repent is disproven throughout the Bible, right Pharaoh saw plenty of them right These people see plenty of them they won 't repent. The people in John six saw signs they didn 't repent in John five a guy 's healed he doesn 't repent in right. fact, he didn 't even find out who healed him he 'd been laying there for years right and then he gets up and goes turns Jesus in. He turns him in and says, He's the one who did it on Sabbath. Wow. And what did Jesus say to him? You better repent or something worse Worst will come Sabbath. upon you, worse than being lame. So what causes people to repent isn't witnessing signs and, and miracles. Amen. It's believing the gospel and the Holy Spirit softening hearts and regenerating us by His grace. Amen. And we come to God on His terms. There's one sign that's absolutely conclusive, and it doesn't matter what every other sign ever did, and that's the sign of Jonah, which is the resurrection of Christ.
0: Well, you and I think so much alike. That was exactly the point. You know, and I was thinking, Bob, as you're saying that, remember in Romans 2, 4, that the kindness of God leads to repentance? But what's interesting is there's a rebuke. There's a rebuke for those who say, well, you teach others, but you don't do it yourself. Don't you know that the kindness of God is to lead you to repentance? So I want you to consider for a moment, if the kindness of God doesn't necessarily lead people to repentance, and if the wrath of God and the signs from God don't lead people to repentance, we know from James 1.20 that the wrath of man does not bring about the righteousness of God. By the way, I was convicted by that word. Bob and I were doing radio once, And I was becoming a little wrathful in my anger against some unbelievers. And that convicted me to say, I'm not going to bring about the righteousness of God in their life through my own wrath. What Bob just mentioned is the only thing that will bring about a change is the Spirit of God. People need regeneration that brings them to faith.
1: You know, if you look at what Eric's teaching here from Revelation and what it gets like at the end, if you think about it, the entire church age... Was is characterized by common grace. Yes, exactly. All Kindness. the people on the earth are allowed to live out their lives. If they do evil, something bad doesn't just come down and bang them. Right. They may live to be very, very old and just keep doing their evil. They're given common grace. They're allowed to breathe the air, enjoy the green trees, catch the fish. Yeah. That's the best thing. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> do what everybody else, is, but they don't repent. Right. So then you have the rapture and now all this stuff happens yeah. and they don't repent. So the conclusion is God grants repentance. Amen. And he does so through the gospel so we need to preach that and who who will repent are those who God touches and regenerates amen. and we don't know who they are so we preach to everybody. Yes. Amen. Well said.
2: Yeah. I just want to um, reinforce what Bob was saying about signs. Yeah. It's, I think about um, the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man wanted to, um, you know, um, evangelize his brothers. Oh, yeah. And um, God says they won't believe even if someone rises from the dead. Exactly. So, and Christ did rise from the dead. But people still believe. They might believe what the Pope says rather than what Christ said or Joseph Smith or any false teachers. Well said.
0: Yeah, excellent. Right. If they won't believe the law and the writings, Mm -hmm. they won't listen to Moses, Mm -hmm. they're not going to believe even if someone is raised from the dead.
2: And that's why Jesus said, a
0: wicked and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. Um, Bob did a research article showing that a wicked and adulterous generation oftentimes is used as a pejorative. And so you think about... The unbelieving world demands signs, but Jesus is claiming that none is going to be given to it except the sign of Jonah, the resurrection. Now, that's important because in our discussion, you see all these things that seem to be signs. But remember, all the signs are occurring when when the wrath is being poured out. It's, too, it's in a sense, too late. The 70th week of Daniel. So there's nothing prior to the 70th week of Daniel to tip us off as to when this is going to occur. So what we have is the same thing that Noah had in his day, Remember, he was warned. He warned of things not yet seen, or he was warned of things not yet seen. So he had the word of God. You and I have the word of God. That's what people have. And if they won't believe that, they won't believe if someone was raised from the dead. And yes. To,
3: to tie that together, uh, if you actually look at all the Jonah passages, yeah. you, you see the resurrection, but uh, he also says, maybe it's in the Matthew passage, but he also says, just as the Ninevites repented at the preaching of Jonah, yeah. so now he, he's preaching. You know, he's, yes. he's here preaching, and they're not repenting Right uh, at, at his own.
0: The Ninevites figured, Adam, there's something different about this Jonah fellow. He was in the belly of a fish, and he's alive. We should listen to him. Yeah. <laughs> and the same thing should dawn on everyone on the planet. There's something different about this Jesus. He was in the ground for three days. Now he's alive. We should listen to him, just as God said on the Mount of Transfiguration. They, they, they
3: may have noticed something there, but uh, they weren't there with the sailors uh, to, to see all that. Right. And he, he was sent there to, to preach repentance to the people. He went in the middle of the city, uh, and you see the, the king announcing, uh, everyone put on sackcloth and dust and ashes and even wow. the animals. Yes, and, they believed. Uh, the, the whole people uh, repented for that, wow. that generation.
0: Yeah, excellent. All right, anybody else? Well, this is great discussion. I, uh, a class? If we have it, you'll you all get free coffee. <laughs> all right. Well, let's see now, where were we? You know, one concluding thought is, I want to just bring this to fruition here, to kind of a complete thought. Pharaoh hardened his heart when he saw all these signs and wonders. And here the unbelieving world hardens their heart. So again, what changes people is the Spirit of God. We need regeneration. That's how we're changed. You and I weren't somehow spiritually more adept than someone else. We were changed by the Spirit of God so that we would believe upon Jesus Christ. That's what changes people Not either wrath nor signs or even the kindness of God. Unfortunately, people need to be regenerated. Okay, let's go to the fifth bowl then. Do we have time for this? Oh, yeah. Verses 10 through 11, it says, "...the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became darkened, and they gnawed their tongues because of pain, and they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and they did not repent." Of their deeds. Now, again, I want you to see, I, I know you can't see the red, but notice the beast in his kingdom, it was all darkened. That's very similar to what happened again in Exodus. Exodus 10:21. it says, Then Yahweh said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward the sky, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, even a darkness which may be felt. So the same darkness now occurs that happened in the Exodus, that happened to Pharaoh, it now happens to those who are in the kingdom of the beast. And what's very interesting is you notice the term gnawed. Let me point it out with my pointer. Does everyone see that they... Oops, I didn't get my pointer up. Does everyone see that term, they gnawed? That gnawed actually, mosa'omai, is in the imperfect tense. The imperfect tense denotes something that's usually ongoing. It's not completed. It's, the idea is that they kept gnawing themselves. They kept chewing on their tongues, as it were, because they're in such agony. And I want you to consider all of the sores, everything that they've gone through, and then you combine that with darkness, a darkness that probably much like at the exodus could be felt. How terrifying. You know, if you put people in darkness for a short period of time, they've done this with prisoners, they go crazy. Human beings are designed to see light. And so this is absolutely uh, horrific what these people are going through. But again, well, what has been declared to us is that they deserve it. And that was an authoritative voice, an angel, a good angel from heaven, said they deserve what they're getting because they turned down the kindness of God and they went after the people of God. So one of the questions, I think, is how does this darkness create such pain? Well, I think it creates it because it's the culmination of everything else. Separation from God, darkness that can be felt, the sores, ulcers, etc. it all piles up on them. It is probably unimaginable pain. So that's the fifth bowl. Now, let me keep going if I get to the... um, Oh, again, notice I have the underline, they did not repent of their deeds. So just like Pharaoh hardened his heart, you have those who belong to the kingdom of the beast, they harden their heart. Again, signs and wonders don't convict people. It's only by the Spirit of God that anyone ends up believing. Now, let's just introduce the sixth bowl here, if we have time. Now, this is going to take some time to develop this. So let me just read it. I'll make a few comments. We'll probably have to close Revelation 16:12 through 14 it says the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river the Euphrates and its water was dried up so that the way would be prepared for the kings from the east and I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs for they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God the Almighty. So, notice, dear ones, what happens is you have the sixth angel pour out a bowl on the great river Euphrates. Now, why is the river Euphrates so significant? Well, because it marks off the eastern border of the kingdom of Israel. Um, can, Bob, can you read Genesis 15:18? Oh, I want to save your voice, though. No, um, I'm, I'm mostly... Oh, okay. All right. Genesis 15:18. What I'm going to have Bob read is you're going to see God give to Abraham the borders, as it were, of the land of Israel. And it extends ultimately to the the river of Euphrates. Can you imagine? Think about how small Israel is now and how the world complains about building settlements. Can you imagine them saying, well, actually, we deserve all the land of the Euphrates. Can you imagine the uproar from that? Well, anyway, here we'll see that
1: that is, in fact, the borders. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, I give this land to your offspring from the brook of Egypt to the Euphrates River. Wow. Yeah, so do you hear that?
0: The, the, The demarcation of the land begins from the Euphrates all the way to the Mediterranean Sea. That's where it is. Those are the boundaries. Now, what that shows us then is when the Euphrates is being singled out, everyone beyond the Euphrates is considered part of Babylon. Babylon is along the Euphrates. All those who are outside of the Euphrates, that'd be on the eastern side, are depicted as the enemies of God, the great eschatological enemies that are going to come against Israel. By the way, Joshua, if you're interested in note-taking, Joshua 1, 3 through 4, also notes that these are, in fact, the demarcations of the land of Israel. That is, the borders extend... To the Euphrates. Now, Babylon, remember, is going to be sacked in Revelation chapter 17 through 18. So, all of this language about the Euphrates and Babylon is designed to show us that Babylon is going to be overthrown. Okay? And also, I'm going to show you next time, we don't have time now, but there's also perhaps an allusion here to Isaiah 11. Because in Isaiah 11, God promises that one day he's going to dry up the Euphrates, not just to judge his enemies but so that the remnant can return. You asked the question, Rich, about the great trumpet in Matthew 24, 31. And we talked about how that would be the final ingathering. That happens after the Battle of Armageddon. That's part of this whole picture. The Euphrates is dried up not just to allow the enemies of God to attack Israel, but also to allow the remnant to return. We're going to see both and next time okay so we're going to unpack arm again we're going to talk about where it is there's actually a lot of debate as to where this battle will occur and we'll talk all about that next time but the big picture dear ones is i want you to again see that this is a great reversal that all the tribulations that the people of god go through in the 70th week of daniel they'll be poured out upon the enemies of god so you and i who trust upon messiah we're in fine shape aren't we We belong to him who will one day rectify all things and will save and bring his people into the promised land. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Lord, we thank you that you are faithful and true. We thank you for your kindness. We know that it was designed to lead us to repentance. But Lord, as we consider these things, we know that it's only by your spirit that any of us believe. We thank you for that. We thank you for the fact that you regenerated us and brought us to your son so that we may be spared from these things so that the son would not scorch us that we'd have our share with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom to come. We do pray for those that don't know you. We pray that we'd be given opportunity to be bold with the gospel so that others may hear, believe, and to flee from these things that are coming upon the world in your timing. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.